Colossians 3, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Colossians 3. We're going to continue our series in Colossians uh, 3. 984 in your chair Bible. If you don't have a Bible with us, I'd really encourage you to open the Bible if you do have one near you. Uh, it'll be up on the screen as well. Um, and so we've been uh, in, in a series in Colossians, uh, a New Testament letter written to a kind of region of churches. And what we're going to kind of get into in the next couple chapters, in chapters 3 and 4, as we kind of move towards the end of the series, is some extremely practical teaching. Uh, that if Jesus is Lord, as we've called the series, if he, Jesus is Lord over all things, that means he's Lord over all things. And so that means Lord over our lives, Lord over the church, Lord over our relationships, Lord over our work, Lord over our finances, Lord over our, our, our minds, our hearts, uh, the creation, everything, you name it. If he's Lord over one thing, he's Lord over everything, because if God is not Lord over everything, he's not God. And so what's so fascinating about Colossians is that for in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is Paul is going to spend an absorbent amount of time talking about really five big areas of how this is fleshed out. How do we live in light of Christ and his redemption? That all that he's done for us, what does that look like for me personally uh, as a Christian, which we're going to talk about this morning? Um, we're going to talk about what it means to live as God's people and the church. We're going to talk about what it means to live in our families um, and work, and also those outside the church. And so you could say what, where we're going to head the next few weeks is really some practical Christian teaching or cra- practical Christian living in five big areas of our, of our lives. And so this morning, where I want to land is the practical teaching or practical Christianity on the Christian and Christ and how we relate to, to God. Before we do that, I wanted to read a quote uh, from... D.A. Carson um, quoted in another book that he didn't write. And I'm actually going to read part of this paragraph and then get into the Carson quote. It's actually a book um, called Center Church. It's by uh, a pastor named Tim Keller. And then he quotes D.A. Carson. But, but I want you to hear this because I think this fits well into what we're going to look at this week and the, and the coming weeks as we close out the series. He says this, Most of our problems in life come from a lack of proper orientation to the gospel. Pathologies in the church and sinful patterns in our individual lives ultimately stem from a failure to think through the deep implications of the gospel and to grasp and believe the gospel through and through. Put positively, the gospel transforms our hearts and our thinking and changes our approaches to absolutely everything. When the gospel is expounded and applied in its fullness in any church, that church will look unique. People will find in it, an attractive, electrifying balance of moral conviction and compassion. And here's the D.A. Carson quote. He's a, a theologian in Chicago. He says this, The gospel is regularly presented not only as truth to be received and believed, but the very power of God to transform. One of the most urgently needed things today is a careful treatment of how the gospel, biblically and richly understood, ought to shape everything we do in the local church all of our ethics, all of our priorities. I love that quote. So, so the gospel message, as we've said many times, is not the ABCs of faith and just believe in Jesus and get baptized and then just kind of move on your way, but it's the A to Z, that it has implications for every square inch of your life and every square inch of the entire universe to transform us in every way, shape, and form, and to transform the entire creation in every way, shape or form. And I, I believe that in the next few weeks, Paul is going to really help us see that in different areas um, of our lives. So with that, 
Colossians 3, I'm just going to read the first eight verses. Colossians 3, first eight verses. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. This is the word of God uh, for us this morning. So as I said, the the practicality of practical Christian living today, Christianity, is going to start with Christ and us, Christ and the Christian. So how do we maintain a vibrant and joyful relationship with Jesus? What does that look like? And Paul is very clear of of how that has worked out, how that is is fleshed out. And the way he does that is he gives us four imperatives or four commands from the scriptures that kind of show us how to do this, which is very practical. And I love the way Paul is that because Paul is the master at doing this. If you read the New Testament, you'll see time and time again, the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, he's he's talking about the beauties and mercies of Christ and, and all that God has accomplished for us before the foundation of the world. God has redeemed a people for his name. And then he spends chapters you know, four, five, and six and saying, in light of this, live a life worthy of, of Christ, of what he's done for you. Live a life worthy uh, as a husband, as a, as a mother, as a, as a wife, as a ch- child. You know, live a life worthy in your work, in, 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 with the church, you know, in your prayer life, whatever it may, may be. And so he does this time and time again. He does it in the book of Romans. He does it in the book of Galatians. He does it here in Colossians. And so we're going to frame it by these four imperatives. And so the first imperative that we, we see is, he says, seek the things that are above. Seek the things that are above. But notice here, there's, a, there's an indicative right before this. We've talked about indicatives before. It's, it's the realities of who we already are. An imperative is a command, do these things. But an but, but a, a indicative is, you're already these things. So in light of these things, now live differently. Now, now follow these commands. That's how the gospel works. That's how Christianity works. It is not do these things and God will love you. Uh, say these prayers and God will love you. Be a moral person and God will love you. It is God has already laid his life down for you. And in light of those things, even while you're enemies of God, he, 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 he bore your sins, so now live in light of him what he's already done for you. And that's a little bit what Paul is doing here, because I want you to see that if we go to seek the things that are above before getting verse 1, it's an absolute train wreck and nightmare. You can't live this way. Because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And if we think it's just a, a moral game and it's will, willpower and strength, we're going to continue to fall on our faces. But Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because if we don't get that indicative first, I could say it this way, if we don't understand gospel realities first, that they precede gospel imperatives, that if you don't understand that you've been raised with Christ and then now you're called to seek the things of Christ, it will be an absolute laborious impossibility to live as God would want you to live. 
Because even when we fall on our faces, it's, it's those moments where we go, geez, am I even a Christian anymore? I sinned again. I fell on my face. But it's coming back to these indicatives and saying that you're already in Christ. You're already a new Christ. You're already a child of God. He doesn't take those things away from us. That is signed and sealed and delivered. You've been seated in the heavenly places. You already have a home waiting for you in heaven. So even when we fall on our faces, what's so beautiful about gospel indicatives and gospel realities is that when I fall on my face, I don't go to imperatives and go, okay, God, what do I have to do to make you happy? How do I, how do I fix this thing up? How do I, should I go to church more? Should I read um, the Bible more? I mean, I'll read Leviticus if you want me. I'll read it in the Hebrew if that's what it takes. I won't have that nasty thought again. I won't do that again. And, I, and I'll get baptized one more time just to make sure it takes. And Paul would say, no way. Come back to who you already are. Christ hasn't left you alone. And that's what, what Paul's doing here. We see that actually in, in Colossians through our series time and time again. Remember in chapter 2, um, last week, verse 20, He says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And so he gives the the imperative here. He says, if you've already died to these things, the the, the things of the world don't have a hold on you anymore. These false religions, the ways of being in the world don't have a hold on you anymore. You've died to those things. Now live to these things. Don't fall into do not taste, do not touch. That's that's law. That's not gospel. That's not freedom that, that Christ has come to give you. Remember, if you go up a little bit further in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. See the indicative before the imperative? They're everywhere. So, so as you've trusted Christ, as you've received Him as your ultimate treasure, as your ultimate joy, as the Lord of your life, now walk in Him, built up in Him. Not walk in Him and then receive Him. Not walk in Him and then if you fall on your face, go, okay, I'm sorry, God. It's, it's because you've already received Him. Now live out of that built up in Him. And then verses 11 and 12. The same chapter of, of chapter 2. In Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with Him in baptism... Baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's already yours in Christ. That you, were, you, you died to him as you go into the waters, but you've been raised with him to new life. That's yours, secured, signed, sealed, delivered. God doesn't take that away. God doesn't lay his life down and go, yeah, but you've kind of, you know, there's a quotient and you've gone over the quotient, the sin quotient, and made a mess of things, so I'm taking that back. God doesn't take his gifts back. I take gifts back when my kids... No, I don't. But, but we could, right? But God doesn't act that way. He always fulfills his promises. So, so seek the things that are above. I wanted to hit that just, just a little bit hard because I want to make sure that we know that if we're going to seek the things above, we already have to know who we are in Christ. Because you've been raised with him seek the things. Because you've died with Him, seek the things. Because you've been, you're a child of God, seek the things. You're a saint. You're a new creation. You're His. Seek the things above. Now, what's interesting about this word seek is that it's a desire. It's a, it's a relational term. It's a desire for something or someone to know them. To know them deeply. To have more information, you could say, even about them. Very relational word. So, so when Paul says seek the things above, 
He says, we do that because we've been raised with Christ, but also seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So it's a deep longing desire that I want to actually seek this God because he's already loved me in Christ. I want to get to know him. I want to know what what he likes and doesn't like. I want to know his character. I want to know all of these things that, that he's revealed from the scripture. And so this isn't just a passive kind of, yeah, if you get around to it. I, I want this to be my all-consuming reality of my, my life, my, my top priority. Everything else is going to be subservient to that. That, that. that practical Christian living isn't getting more, more, more moral or, or a set of rules, but it's seeking the things above. And Paul's making it very clear. Well, what does that mean? The Christ who is above, the one who's seated at the right hand of God. It's an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. Um, when we see that, you know, that Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God, which he is, ruling and reigning, it's a, it's a sign of authority. It's a sign of power. It's, a, it's, a, it's the reality of us saying, Jesus, you are the Lord of everything. That you're the Lord of my life. That you're a good God. You're a good king. You're ruling and reigning over all things. And so if that's true, and then, and then Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2, that one day every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. This Lord, this king over every tribe, every tongue, every culture. If this is who you are and you've redeemed us and you're the creator God as well, then I will gladly seek you because you are sitting at the right hand of God and you have everything that I need. That's what Paul's saying in this short little phrase. That look to him for everything that you need. Because you remember the last few weeks we've been looking at these false teachers that have come into the church. And what are they saying? You don't, don't just look to Christ. You also need visions. You need some kind of mystical experience. You maybe need a special kind of knowledge that you don't possess. Right? If, if you want to be a really true, authentic Christian, you have to have this heightened experience. And so, so Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Look to the one who's seated at the right hand of God. That's where your life is found. That's where your joy is found. That's where your experience is going to be found. It's not something outside of Christ because everything we need is in him. Because he's our maker and he's our redeemer. That the Hebrew writer would say in chapter 12, as you know, I mention all the time, that he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the originator and the one that makes it live and the one that makes it grow. Keep looking to him. Contemplate his life, his death, his resurrection. Don't go anywhere else. Don't go anywhere else. It's not needed. So the seeking, seeking the things above, is really about raising our affections for Christ. Raising our affections for Christ. But also he says, another imperative is set your minds on things that are above. Set your minds on things. This is about a renewing of the mind. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So if this, this first imperative is really about kind of raising our affections, it's about realigning us to the realities of God, that he is the Lord of all things, that he sits at the right hand of God, that everything we have is in him. Secondly, is we actually have to have our minds reworked and retrained and reframed for God and his kingdom. So this little phrase, set your minds on Christ, or things above, is actually a, a contemplative word. It means to contemplate or comprehend or set your attention to. 
And again, this is not a, a, a passive word. This takes effort. Um, I wrote an entire book on meditating on Scripture based on this verse and some other ones. It's very similar to Psalm 1. Right? Meditate on the word day and night. Meditate on the, on the law day and night. It's, it's, it, it's not a passive thing. It's not just a verse of the day and you know, up for, up for his highest or however you say it. Um, it's not just a, a skimming over. But what he's saying is that you need to, to stop and you need to pause and you need to contemplate and you need to set your concentration and your heart on these things. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It's a meditative, slow contemplation of get your mind and your life around this. It's kind of like, you know, if you skim a book, there's value in that. I, that's how I made it through high school and college. Um, but if you really want to become an expert at something or, or know something deeply, is you need to sit with it a little bit longer, don't you? You need to think on it. You need to concentrate on it. And so in many ways, it's, it's what the scriptures give us is, is, is a slow way of saying, have we slowed down enough to even just think on a few of these verses in our lives and, and how, how much they can change us in a moment? Like, I know a lot of people say, you need, you need a diet, when you're reading the Bible, you do need a diet of kind of big sections of Scripture, kind of getting the whole narrative, the story, how things work. But I'm almost a proponent to say, yes, but you need small little sections where you just sit with it for hours and hours and hours. And I don't mean in one time necessarily, but maybe a couple verses that you sit with for the whole week. And you just let that just sit and soak and get in your heart and get in your mind. I think we would see more transformation in our lives if we would just sit a little bit longer. And I know this is a huge sell with, with, with instant everything and, 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 and instant Christianity and Netflix and binging and everything, but you can't do that with the scriptures and you can't do that with God. We're dealing with God here. We have to make room for that. Now, I know in this room we have a lot of uh, ladies, I'll just say that, uh, that have children at home, and you're just like, I would love to sit and meditate on Scripture, but have you seen all the children in my home? <laughs> they don't let me do that at this point in my juncture. But that's what's so beautiful about meditating on Scripture is even with crazy kids climbing all of you, one little verse, one little phrase that you just roll over in your head all day long, you know, as you're yelling at them to stop punching their brother or whatever it is, you come back to that time and time again. You don't need to sit and go, um, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about hiding truth and promises and the word of God in our heart, wherever you are. Working men, you're at your job. You don't, again, don't be the weird guy that has, you know, all the verses plastered on their screen. I mean, you can do that. That's fine. But you don't need to do that. You can be an engineer. You can be a teacher. We have them all in this room. You can, you, you, you can, can, can build things. You can do things. And you can actually sit and meditate on Scripture as you're doing those things. Now, it doesn't have to be all day long. But how many times have I found just God's sweet whisper where I just wanted to strangle someone or I, I just don't want to meet with this person. And God's sweet whisper through one little hacky half of a verse, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or you're a saint, you're a new creation, my grace is sufficient for you. Whatever it is. So, so setting our minds on things above is not a passive skimming through a book, but it's sitting with it to let it get deep in our souls and our pores and our joints. 
Now, what's interesting in the way Paul frames this is he actually frames it as a negative, with a negative. So he says, set your mind on things above that are above, not on things that are on earth. And this is where we get totally confused. And I think this verse has been hijacked and butchered way too much. And I'd like to correct it today. You can mark this day as a glorious day. I wouldn't be that arrogant to actually say that. But I think this verse needs some help. So what is Paul saying? Does this mean that anything temporal in this life doesn't matter? Anything that's temporal, relationships, work, hobbies, Netflix, food, whatever, do those things just don't matter, right? We're just called to, to go get our little verse. I mean, Pastor Ryan said, you got to get a verse. you got to get it in your head, right? I mean, you got to go sit on a, on a hill. No, it can't have any worldly thoughts, nothing. You know, my job, I'm a marketer. I'm a researcher. I'm an engineer. I, 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 you know, I, I own my own business. I can't have any thoughts on that. No, that's not what Paul means at all. And I think this verse has done a lot of damage to a lot of people. So what does he mean? Well, first, the reason why he doesn't mean this is because the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible doesn't talk. Let me give you one verse just to kind of help us. I don't have a ton of time this morning, so I, I could go further. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul, the same writer, here, here's what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, though the insincerity of, li- of liars, whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be received if it's, if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, again, complicated text, but it's actually not as complicated as you think. So in the, in the first century, there were all these different people coming out of pagan religions with all these kinds of rules around food and, and drink and marriage and all these kinds of things. And Paul, what he's doing is actually specifically saying there are actually demonic teachers that are saying you don't need to be married or it needs to look a certain way. And you need to avoid certain kinds of foods or certain kinds of drink. Now, we don't know all the context. We don't know all the details. But the principle is very clear. These things that God has made, things like marriage, things like food, are to be received with thanksgiving because they're good and God made them. That you are not going to be more holy by avoiding these things necessarily. Now, this isn't a free-for-all, just like go get hammered. No, that's not what we're talking about. But what we're saying is these are good gifts of the creation. It doesn't mean seek the things above means I never have it enjoy a you know root beer or fajitas. I I don't get to enjoy my marriage. I don't get to enjoy relationships because God wouldn't want that. He just wants me to contemplate the things of Christ. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying actually people that forbid those things are demonic and heretical. It's just another law. But there's good things God has given us to enjoy. Go read Ecclesiastes, they're all over the place. Even the toil and the pain of work is still a good thing. Even food and drink is still a good thing, even though you can get love handles and stuff and clogged arteries. But they're to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. They're good gifts from God. So the Bible doesn't talk that way. And it's also not practically possible. (laughs) Like, think about it. So if you spend every moment of every second of the day contemplating Christ, setting your mind on things of Christ, well, probably not going to get your bills paid. The children you do need to take care of probably aren't going to get cared for. Leave me alone. Paul said, seek the things above. 
I don't care if you're hungry. Right? We're not going to have any cities. No one's going to build anything. No one's going to sustain anything. We've got a bunch of engineers in here, right? No one's going to create any works of art. No one's going to enjoy fajitas. It's going to be a flat world that doesn't reflect God's image and God's glory. That's not what Paul is suggesting at all. But he gives us a hint in verse 5 exactly what he's suggesting. So go back to Colossians. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We'll get to that in the third imperative in just a moment here. But here's what he's saying. He's saying this, instead of contemplating what is earthly, contemplate what is above, what is Christ, what is his will, his desires, right? What is earthly is sin. That's what he's saying. You can't contemplate both those things. You can't set your mind on things that are evil and things that are wicked and things that are covetousness and idolatry at the same time contemplating the things of God. He says those things need to go away, as we'll talk about in the fourth one about putting away the former life. So he's not saying don't, don't you know, never have a, a nice, you know, bottle of whatever. I know we have Baptists in here. I want to be careful. <laughs> never enjoy a nice dinner. Don't enjoy a good story or good music or whatever it is. He's not saying that, but he's saying, but when your heart goes to evil things, addressed here in verse 5, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil, account of these things, put those things away. Set your mind on Christ and the reality that you've been bought at a, at a huge price, that you are alive in him, that you've been resurrected from the dead. Set it on him. You can't mix oil and water. Now, granted, some of those things might lead to these sins that he describes. But his point is not to enjoy, not never to enjoy anything that's in this world and just be monks and sit in the corner and go, oh, okay, Colossians 3. But to say, in light of, of Christ, I need to put to death all these old ways of impurity and passion and evil desires. 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 13 Peter says it a little bit differently, but I think it's the same idea. He says, um, I can find it. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It takes some concerted effort a sober mind, thinking on those things, thinking on the things that are, are, are not of, of Christ, things that are, that are causing problems, the evil desires within, the, the things that are leading us into places we don't want to go. Set your, your mind, so, sober your mind, humble your mind so that it can be renewed. So that even as you're exposed to things that go contrary to Christ and what he would want, you'd say, no, thank you. I don't need that. I don't need to look at that. I don't need to be about that. But that takes some concerted effort. Because I believe as your mind is being renewed and transformed, those sins don't look that enticing anymore as they once did. I'm not talking about perfection. But it starts crowding out those things that we thought we needed so desperately and so badly. And we say, nope. Not, not as beautiful, not as gracious, not as joyful as knowing this, this God. I don't need to go down that, that road anymore. And I think there's a lot of people in this room that could, could say yes and amen to that and testify to that, what that means in different ways, shapes, and forms. 
So we can do that through the word. We can do that through prayer and fellowship with the church and, and continually seek the things above so that we can keep our hearts awakened and alive to Christ and begin to see those things, those evil desires that, that, that go contrary to God's will to begin to be pushed aside. And that's a little bit what Paul means in the, that third little practical step, put to death what is earthly. Put to death what is earthly. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God uh, is coming. So, so first, we're, we're, we're just by way of review, we're, we're putting on, we're, we're seeking the things that are above because we've been raised with Christ. We've died with Christ. We are already belong to him. So we're going to seek the things where Christ is seated. We're going to seek him and know him and be about him. And everything's going to flow from that. We're going to raise, see our affections raised for him, knowing he is Lord of everything, God of everything, maker of everything, redeemer of everything. And then we're going to set our minds, we're going to have our minds so renewed so that when, when these evil desires from within and from without be kind of creep in, that we're going to have the, the wisdom and the affections of Christ so they get crowded out, that we don't want even to go down those roads at all and say, no, thank you. But it's going to take some effort, some attention, some concerted effort to continually contemplate these things and think on these things. But then Paul says to put to death what is, what is earthly. Some theologians call this the mortification of sin. The mortification of sin. So we, we've already mentioned these earthly sins before Christ, kind of the, the normal ways of living. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying this is where you've been redeemed out of. This is how you just used to live. It's just normal living, right? You, you were about all these things, about evil and impurity and sexual morality and all that kind of stuff. But he says that's not who you are. You need to put to death those things. You need to crucify those things because that's not who you are anymore. But notice the way that Paul, the motivator he uses here in verse 7. In these you two once walked, or excuse me, in 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So, so he's saying these sins that you used to walk in, God has to come and justly, because he's a just God, he, he's a holy God, that we've broken God's commands in every single way. Every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. These sins have to be punished before a holy God. He's not holy and he's not just and he's not loving if he just lets those things happen. Many of us in this room have been sin, sinned against tremendously. You shared your stories with me. And some of you haven't been able to reconcile or haven't been able to, for whatever reason, that person wasn't able to do that or, or, or the situation. But, but a good God and a holy God says in the end, they will, there will be justice. That won't go unpunished. All the, the sick things and the, the gross, dark things we see in our world, God is not going to let those just keep going and going and going. They will be ultimately in the end punished. So he gives a different motivator here to say, they will be punished. That's who you used to be. But because you're in Christ, there's nothing to fear. So put those things to death, those earthly things, those things that are raging war in your soul. That we're going to stand before God, but we can stand confidently, not because of our own morality, but because of trusting in the blood and the mercies and the righteousness of Christ. That's where we stand before God. Because if you're looking at your life and my life and going, I'm just going to stand before God and say, God, how are the biceps? Good? Moral? He's going to go pathetic, Ryan. You need to hit the gym a little more, bud. Spiritually speaking. That's going to be a scary day, a sad day. 
I think for all of us, right? But Father, I, I'm trusting in the righteousness of Christ. He, he, he did it for me. I, I, it's his record I'm banking my life on. It's his righteousness I'm banking. I am his. I belong to him. I'm going to look to him, and, and he's going to look to him and go, well done, my faithful servant. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter what we do in our lives. I'm not saying that at all. It does. But, but what motivates us is, is these earthly, these things that we know are warring in our souls and our hearts that we need to rid ourselves. So we need to ask the question, what do we see that's earthly in us right now? Right in this room, right in this moment. What do you need to put to death? No, that's not who I am. Pornography, lust, wanting something that's not ours, covetousness, that's what that is, right? Evil desires can take all different shapes and sizes. And here's what's interesting about Paul's list here. These aren't random lists. This isn't Paul just going, oh, here's some good sins just to throw in there, some vices. I think most humanity struggles with this. I think all of these in some way, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry, I think they're all rooted in the same thing. They're all rooted in fantasy. It's believing that something that I can see and touch is better than God that I can't see. These are all desire things. It's if I had this person outside of marriage, someone other than my spouse, if, if, I, if I looked at this thing that somehow maybe it can calm the, the, the soul. But we know they always disappoint, don't they? Always. It might even work in the moment. I, I know that's how sin works, right? It, it looks really good and we, we get into it and it's just like, oh yeah. And then it just fades really quick. Because it's all fantasy. And that's why Paul talks about idolatry, because idols don't speak and they don't touch and they don't feel. They don't have feelings. They don't care about you. They just want to destroy your life. The psalmist talked that way. I love, the, I love that in the psalms, right? They're made of wood and metal and hay. And, and yet, what do we do? We go after the idols, right? The things that they can't deliver on their promises. And we say, oh, I want that. I, I need that, right? And then, and then it's just like, I don't care about you. <laughs> I don't care about your life. I don't care about your joy. And so, so for me, it, it's, it's this thing of if, the, if God is offering me something eternal and something lasting that doesn't fade and doesn't go away, then I want to seek that with all my heart. I want my happiness and my joy to be in something that's eternal, that's not going to be taken away by temporal things. Even good things. Like, I don't want my job to be that, my wife to be that, my kids to be that. And you've heard me say this five zillion, that's not even a word, but we're, we're going to get it in the, the Urban Dictionary next year. But, but, but five zillion ways to say your wife and your husband and your kids and your, your philosophy of life and your cause cannot satisfy the soul that was created for God. And we know that because the dream job fades after about two months. But when we get this right... Hear me, I'm not done. I'm not done ranting. But when we get this right, it's so beautiful because you can love your wife really well and your kids really well and you can work really well because your ultimate treasure is not found in those things. And you can do suffering really well and failure and disappointment really well because your treasure and your hope is not being awesome for the sake of being awesome or fear of missing out, or whatever the cool kids are saying these days. Because my treasure's found in Christ. And I think that's why Paul addresses these. Because they're all built on these lies. If the grass was just a little bit greener, if I could just have that house, or that life, or that relationship, then somehow, maybe my life will be something important. He says, don't believe the lies. 
And again, I could have probably most of you stand up here and go, yeah, that's a lie. <laughs> testimony after testimony, lie, 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 lie. Yeah, amen, pastor. You don't say very many good things, but that's a true one. Lie, right? Been there, done that. I know how that goes. And that's a daily battle, by the way. That's a daily battle. So put to death what is earthly. What are the things right now that you would say it's, it's something I want, something I need that's not of God that I believe will give me what I, I, I think will bring me ultimate joy and satisfaction in life and salvation? And then lastly, put away your former life. Put away your former life, verse 7 and 8. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. Can, can we just pause real quick? This verse is so loaded with love that you don't even, can't, I can't even comprehend. Paul is not condemning this church. He's saying, hey, you used to live this way, but that's not who you are anymore. The cause of Christ has done so much damage to people because they don't read texts like this enough. Instead, we come with guns blazing, destroying people, saying, well, you didn't measure up. You, didn't, you wore a hat to church, and you, did, you didn't dance, and you watched Disney movies, and you, whatever. But he's lovingly, as a pastor, with a pastor's heart, saying, hey, leave the former life behind. That's who you used to be. That's not who you are anymore. What if we cared for each other at New City like that? Like in a city group, someone confesses something and you're just like, what? You did what? Like maybe it requires that for a moment. But to say, hey, Ryan, I know you're in Christ. That's your former life. That's not you anymore. That's not you anymore. You've been hidden with Christ. You're his. This is what Paul is gently doing. There's a struggle here. This is why we have a New Testament. It's because all these churches are struggling. This isn't, oh, we got it. Let's just move on to other things. It's a daily struggle. This is why Paul prays in Ephesians uh, 1 and in Ephesians 3 about opening our eyes to the deeper loves and realities. Why? Because our eyes shut. Right? Is your eyes just fully open every single day of the mercies and the wideness and the deepness and the grace of God? Like every moment of every day, I just love God. I love my neighbor. Right? Is that our story on any level? No. That's why there has to be prayers in the Bible to say, pray this, that your eyes will continue to be open because your eyes shut constantly. You need to hear this again. This is why the verse 7 is here. This is your former way. This is not who you are anymore. You don't have to walk that road any longer. You've been hidden with Christ. You've been raised. You've been seated. Okay, I'll stop. But he's saying this former life, it's time to put that away. And what, there's two moves here that we do with our former life. Is one, we need to challenge it. And two, we need to change it. Former life. Everyone has a former life. I don't care who you are. And so Paul's planting a church. There's Gentiles coming in. They worship all kinds of weird gods, all kinds of views on ethics, all kinds of views on marriage, all kinds of views of whatever. When you became a Christian, if you are a Christian here this morning, you came in with all kinds of views on everything. You did. We all did. Some good, some bad. 
Right? The reality that we're all made in the image of God, there's some good things about that. Why? doesn't matter if you're a believer or not. There's certain things, I think, deep down that we all want. Right? We, we want to work hard. We want to take care of our families. We want justice. We want love in some weird way. Right? But there, that's being stamped by God. But some of us grew up in very destructive ways of, of living and, and, and traditions and customs and, and whatever. And that can take on religious forms. That can take on non-religious forms. That's why when missionaries go to other lands, they have to sometimes unearth some of these ways that aren't healthy, that are destructive. I mean, there are, you know, faraway places. There's tribal people that still, you know, sacrifice children and kill people and stuff. So, I mean, the gospel does speak into those things. Now, I know there's been bad things, especially in the modern missionary movement where, you know, people get colonized and you need to wear a three-piece suit and you need to sing hymns from white Europeans. We're not saying that. But there are certain ways of being and certain ways of living that the gospel gives us um, commands for. So we have to challenge our old way of life. So when you become a Christian, it's not just Jesus and then all the other stuff that's here. It's like we have to continually kind of push those things away and say, nope, not consistent with Christ, not consistent with Christianity, not consistent with the scriptures, and push those things away constantly. Some of us are still dealing with the residue of that. I do a lot of premarital counseling with couples that are getting married. We walk through that a lot. What are the ways that your parents parented you that are good? What are the ways they're not good? Destructive. Pushing those things, saying, you know, and again, no perfect parents, no, right? We're not saying perfection here by any means. But you have to challenge those things, the things that don't honor Christ, the things that don't glorify God, the things that don't create a a thankful, loving uh, uh, life before God, religious traditions, customs, relationships, work, time, money, whatever it is, we need to challenge those things. And then lastly, we need to change those things. And Paul addresses a couple more vices here. What does he say? Verse 8, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Now again, is Paul just pulling random vices and sins out of a hat and saying, oh, that sounds good? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is all of these have a social nature to them. And it's actually going to lead into our sermon next week about how do we relate to each other in community with other people in relationship. They all have a social nature to them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. And obscene talk's not like dirty jokes. It's just it's decisive, it's divisive, excuse me, talk. Now, this is a moment in the sermon, and I'm almost done, where I just see how the Bible is just so irrelevant. Just, I mean, it's just way up here. It doesn't, I mean, really does it speak to our culture and our lives? Because I think these, these vices, they don't exist anymore. I mean, they're not causing any problems in our world at all, on any level. And the ones he listed before, I mean, those are kind of irrelevant, right? Live how you want to live, sexual morality, doesn't matter, outside of marriage, doesn't matter, anything. It doesn't, does anything go, anger, malice, grudge, divisive talk. I think every problem in our world is a seed of what Paul just mentioned here. Amen? Got really quiet. I think there's so much reality here in Colossians 3 that it almost, I can't even begin to understand it. And here's Paul saying, this will destroy your life. This will destroy the world. That is not who you are. It's not a competition anymore. It's, and when you're angry, you don't attack. You don't, you know, you forgive now because you've been forgiven in Christ. You don't speak ill of people. You don't slander them, right? That's not who we are anymore. 
We don't talk that way. We don't, there's no more better upmanship. There's no more, I'm better than you. I'm, I'm smarter than you. I'm, I'm more spiritual than you. All of that died at the foot of the cross. No more. You need to put those things away because it will destroy you and it will destroy every relationship around you. Put on Christ. The one who's fought our battles so we don't have to fight for ourselves. The one who's been just towards us so we don't have to be the judge and the justice and the, and the courtroom. That even when we've been wrong, Jesus says, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us because we've seen the grace and the mercy that's been extended to you and we lay that down. Say, I'm not holding that against you. You know why? Because Christ doesn't hold that against me any longer because it all died on the cross. That I'm not going to speak ill of your name. I'm not going to revenge your name at work. Why? Because my name is already secured in Christ. My reputation is already secured in Christ. I don't need to have a better, bigger name. Because Christ has done all of those things for me. I don't need to be divisive with my language. Because, especially in the church, (laughs) we have everything we need in Christ. We're united in Him. Because I have everything I need in Him. That's where the foundation of these vices and characteristics and sins are built is looking to this Christ we've been talking about for 40 minutes. The one who's seated at the right hand of God. In him is everything we need to live the lives worthy of him. And every week we're reminded of those realities, the former ways of life. That's not who we are anymore. That Christ the bread represented the broken body of Christ and the, and the cup represented the blood of Christ that he shed his blood for us. He broke his body for us so that we could have new life in him and we're not the same anymore. That we have hope in him. That it's, it's not a moral game. It's not, hey, I'm coming to the table today because I have my life all fixed up. It's, I come to the table because I'm needy and I need God's grace and I need God's forgiveness because all the things the pastor talked about and all the things Paul talked about in Colossians 3, I've fallen on my face many times this week and I need your grace, Jesus. That's how we come. But then we leave knowing that the Spirit of God is with us, that we have power to live the lives that God would want us to live. And that's the good news, that God has not left us or forsaken us to just pull up our bootstraps and and just gut it out. But he's given us his Spirit to walk in truth and walk in grace and walk in mercy. So if you're a believer in Christ, please come and take the, the supper this morning. The way we do it, we have two lines up on the front. Break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the, the cup. And, and as you eat it, just remember that Christ is your all in all, that Christ is your child, that he is seated at the right hand of God, that he has everything for you, that he has forgiven you, that you are his child, that there's nothing you need to, to, to outside of him. But I would say, because if you're like me this week, there were some things that you attached to a little too strongly. And he would encourage us to lay those before his feet and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. I've given a little too much credence, a little too much weight, a little too much life to this sin or this thing or this idea or this whatever. I'm going to lay that down before you and I know he's gracious to forgive me. And if you're not a believer in Christ, we just ask you to stay seated, but we have some prayers in the city life and we want you to consider that because we believe that Jesus is Lord of everything, Lord of the universe, Lord of our lives, Lord of the church, Lord of salvation. We want you to know him. We want to put you in those waters. 
Not because we have some agenda or I have some denominational quotient that I have to meet. It's because we believe that Jesus has everything we need and more now and forever. That's why. And he's come to save and redeem and give us new lives so that we could be freed from the shackles of sin and the world and everything else. And now we can go and live in light of that. So with that, let us pray. Father, thank you for Colossians 3. Thank you for reminding us that Christ is at the right hand of God, that he has everything we need. And God, if we're sitting here this morning and and we realize that even the things that Paul listed that are warring within us, God, that we would lay those things down, that you are faithful to forgive us. And if we're honest, we all struggle with something. We all struggle with the fantasies of what if I just had that. But God, reveal to us that everything we need is in you. And then in light of that, help us live lives worthy of you. Forgive us of our sins, God. Thank you for the reminders this morning of baptism and the Lord's Supper to see tangibly the grace of God on display for us. May it warm our hearts. May it fill us with joy. May it send us out with thanksgiving to serve the least of these, to to serve our neighbors and our homes, our kids, our families, wherever we are. For your beautiful name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come and celebrate the Lord's Supper with us.